Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, the show of the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive into the NCAA's announcement that it will be creating a new policy to allow student athletes to profit off their name, image, and likeness. Beginning with an examination of the NCAA's press release, we will then move to break down the principles and guidelines the NCAA state they will follow in determining how the new bylaw will be written, focusing on three specific questions and issues related to the potential new rules. So, if you're wondering why the NCAA has decided to finally allow student-athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness, or what the potential ramifications are of the change in this policy, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back. Relax and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to do something a little bit different. In the past with our podcasts, we normally plan them pretty far in advance, and that gives us time to do research, to write up what we want to say, and to make sure we have this very focused line of thought. But today, because of recent news that came out, we're going to flip the structure because on October 29th, the NCAA Board of Governors released a statement saying that they are going to start a process to institute rules that will allow student-athletes to profit off their name and likeness. And so today what I want to do is I want to go over that news release from the NCA, And then I want to focus on three questions that I have, three potential consequences of what we're going to see in the NCA, and talk about each of those briefly. But as I said, let's begin with the NCA's press release talking specifically about what happened. It begins, quote, In the association's continuing effort to support college athletes, the NCA's top governing board voted unanimously to permit students participating in athletics the opportunity to benefit from the use of their name, image, and likeness in a manner consistent with the collegiate model. Let's stop there for a second. This is the big news. In the past, throughout the entire history of the NCAA, one of the things that they have tried to fight against is the notion of professionalism within sport. They are cited to be an amateur association, meaning that those individuals participating need to be amateurs. Now, we've gone through a whole podcast on this in the past. We talked about the history of the NCAA, but to give you the short version If we look at just the definition of amateurism, we're pointing to individual athletes who participate and are not getting an extrinsic benefit, meaning they're not getting paid for their participation. The NCAA has really hit on this and focused on this in saying that they do not want to pay their athletes. Now, many have argued that while they're not being paid directly, they're still receiving extrinsic rewards through the forms of scholarships. So the idea that they're amateurs kind of always been in flux. But allowing individuals now to profit off their name, image, and likeness is going a step more than just allowing them to get money for or get money from the university for scholarships. It's saying that if you are famous, if you have the ability to use your image, use your looks, use the name that you have to make money, you will be allowed to do it. But they point very specifically 
that they're putting together rules to make sure that this ability to make money does not clash with the current collegiate model, which is the notion that these individuals are student athletes. So that first paragraph, that first sentence is the big news of the release. But let's go on and really dig into what they said. The release goes on to say, quote, The Board of Governors Action directs each of the NCAA's three divisions to immediately consider updates to relevant bylaws and policies for the 21st century. They go on to say, quote, We must embrace change to provide the best possible experience for college athletes. Additional flexibility in this area can and must continue to support college sports as part of higher education. The modernization for the future is a natural extension of numerous steps NCAA members have taken in recent years to improve support for student athletes, including full cost of attendance and guaranteed scholarships, end quote. So again, Michael V. Drake, who's the chair of the board and the president of Ohio State, saying specifically that this move is made to support the current structure of college athletics. He's referring here to the idea that college sports are a part of higher education. There's this belief, and it's part of this collegiate model, that sport is entwined with education. Not only can the athletes learn through their participation, but that there is an experience of going to these athletic events that are inane within college. And what Drake is saying is that this rule is just being put in place to further support this notion. Now, the really interesting thing is when we go down further into the release. They say, specifically, the board said modernization should occur with the following principles and guidelines. And then they lay out a series of eight guidelines that they say these rules have to follow. The first guideline is that you must assure student athletes are treated similarly to non-student athletes unless a compelling reason exists to differentiate. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal. One of the big arguments for allowing student athletes to make money off their image and likeness outside of sport has always been that other students that are not athletes can make money. Oftentimes, we point to individuals in music, individuals in the performing arts that say, well, that individual might come in on a violin scholarship. It might be studying music, but they are allowed to go and perform and make money even though that performance might be outside of their work with the university. And so this is just kind of reaffirming that and saying that we're trying to treat student athletes like those non-student athletes to deal with this issue that so many people had. But there's some interesting language in here that I think is put in for specific legal purposes when they say to assure student athletes are treated similarly to non-student athletes unless a compelling reason exists to differentiate. The word compelling, in my view, is legal terminology. If we actually look at things like the 14th Amendment, which we've covered again in past episodes of this podcast, there is a part of the 14th Amendment called the Equal Protection Clause, which says that we cannot discriminate between groups of individuals, but within each group of individuals, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about gender, or whether we're talking about everything else, there is language that says you're not allowed to discriminate unless... So legally, the 14th Amendment protects against that. And I think what they're trying to do with this is to say, we're going to treat all student athletes just like non-athlete students, but they're giving themselves a little out here. And they say, if we can come up with a compelling reason, oftentimes the compelling reason has been the notion of having a fair and balanced playing field. So they're giving themselves a little bit out here. So I find that interesting. The second principle that they say that needs to be followed is that we must maintain the priorities of education and the collegiate experience to provide opportunities for student athlete success. 
Meaning, the priority should first be on education. The rules that are going to be put in place need to make sure that, again, student-athletes are students first. We can't let this idea of, mon- of, of monetization of a person's image get in the way of them becoming students. So they, they highlight that. Now, rules are already in place to really have the priority of athletics be on education. They have minimum GPA requirements, for example, they have the 40-60-90 rule, which is the progression towards degree rule. Those are already in place, but they're just re-emphasizing that, in my opinion, here. They go on to say the third principle is that whatever rules put in place must ensure rules are transparent, focused, and enforceable and facilitate fair and balanced competition. Now, to make sure they're transparent and focused and enforceable are things that make sense. All rules should be transparent. We should have rules that are easy to understand, that are focused on the specific thing that we're talking about, in this case, making money off your name or image. And we have to have some way to enforce it. In other words, we have to have a way for making a determination of individuals violating that rule, and we have to have some type of punishment. The second part, though, is what I think is really interesting and gets into one of my main principal questions with this new guideline is they say it must facilitate fair and balanced competition. Now, this is where I will step aside from the NSA statement for a second, because this is the main issue that a lot of people point to in saying that we should not pay student athletes. Now, the NSA is not paying them directly or the athletic program isn't, but to allow individuals to make money off their name and likeness is essentially paying them. So the NCA has always focused on providing fairness. They actually state they have three main priorities, academics, well-being, and fairness. And when they speak about fairness, they have said, quote, with major reforms continuing rapidly in college athletics, key rule changes are focused on improving the student-athlete experience. They go on to say the NCAA is committed to providing a fair and inclusive and fulfilling environment for student-athletes and fans. In other words, the NCAA is focused on providing fairness on the field and fairness off the field. The question becomes, how will this new rule affect this desire for fairness? Because if we want to have fair competition on the field, many people argue that paying athletes would actually hurt that notion of fairness. And the argument goes something like this. If we allow individuals to make money from college sports, whether it's their name, likeness, and image, or paying them directly, What's going to happen is we're going to have only a select number of schools that are actually going to be able to afford to pay their student athletes. This gets into, if we look at the financial structure of college athletics and individual athletic departments, there's roughly 60 maybe schools that could afford to pay college athletes. Those are, if you look at the big five conferences, about 12 teams in each conference, those schools could probably afford. But if we look at NCA Division One in general, we have over 300 schools. If we look at NCA FBS, which is the football bowl series, we have upwards of 120 schools. So half the schools wouldn't even be able to afford this. Of those 60 schools that might be able to actually afford this, the problem then becomes how much can they afford to pay them? And it's not equal and fair. That's why the NCAA has always put into place scholarship allotments in maxes or caps on what those scholarships can be. Because they don't want a school like Ohio State, Michigan, Texas, USC to be able to pay significantly more than a smaller college like Coastal Carolina. They're trying to create a balanced playing field. So the argument would be and is from a lot of people that if we allow individuals to make money off their image and likeness, only a certain number of schools have the notoriety to truly allow an individual to capitalize off their image and likeness. Just think about college football. 
There are certain schools that are always in the press, that are always in the media. Almost all schools have games on TV, but this goes beyond that. Who's playing in the primetime games? Who's playing under the spotlights? And one way to look at this is to say that those schools that are always in the spotlights are going to give individuals greater opportunity to capitalize off their image because their image is in public so much more. And so of those 60 schools, now we would have let down even more. And people say that in doing that, we're going to create the haves and the have-nots. We're going to create a group of schools that are going to be able to afford athletes greater levels of publicity, which means they're going to make more money. The problem then becomes, if I am a recruit that's a high-level recruit, I become much more likely to select the school that's going to make me the more money. People say that that creates an unbalanced playing field. Now, that all makes sense, but the problem is, when you go and actually look at the numbers, this argument breaks down pretty easily. So let's look at college football. And let's just look at the last five years, because in the last five years, we've had the college football playoff system in place. To say we have a fair and balanced playing field in college football sounds nice, but it's just not true. Within the college football playoffs, four teams make it each year. So we've had five years. That means 20, there's been 20 slots available for teams. Of those 20 slots, only nine schools have made it. So that means all those other programs within Division I FBS, those other 120 programs, they have not made it. And it actually, it hasn't even been close because these are all big-name schools. If we break it down, Florida State, Michigan State, Notre Dame, Washington, and Georgia have all made one. Ohio State and Oklahoma have made two playoffs, and Clemson and Alabama have made four and five respectively. If we break it down even more, looking at the winners, only three teams have actually won. Ohio State, Clemson, Alabama. So to say that this rule could affect the balance of playing on the field might be a good argument, but in practicality, we already have an unbalanced playing field. And why is that the case? Because if we look at these programs, these are those 60 schools that all have a great deal of resources. They have money coming in from donors. They make a good amount from ticket sales. They take that money and they invest it on having the best facilities, the best staff, the best coaches. These schools are also putting the most individuals into the pros. So we already have an unbalanced playing field in place. I don't know that allowing athletes to profit off their name and image is going to make it even more unbalanced because it's already pretty unbalanced. And it's not just in college football where we don't have balance. If you look at men's basketball, arguably the sport where student athletes might be able to capitalize the most on this. We've only had 10 champions in the last 20 years. So we don't have a balanced playing field there. Now, you could argue that smaller schools have made deep runs in the tournament. We've had schools like VCU go to the Final Four, Butler go to the Final Four. That has allowed a greater notoriety for those athletes. But majority of the schools that are making it to the Final Four are big-name programs. If we go outside just men's sports, let's look at women's basketball, the sport that probably has the most press coverage from a women's college standpoint. In the last 20 years... 10 of the championships have been won by UConn. We've only had seven national champions. 10 of those 20 champions, though, have been won by a single university. So in women's college basketball, we don't have a fair and balanced playing field. What about women's soccer? We just had the Women's World Cup, gained a lot of positive press. Arguably, women's soccer players would be able to capitalize off their name and notoriety through college sports. How balanced is that? Well, Women's soccer has been having national titles since 1982. So we've had 38 years of national championships. 
21 of those national titles have been won by a single institution, and that's UNC. Now, in the last four years, we have had four different national champions, but again, our balanced playing field is really not existent. So people argue that allowing this to happen, allowing student-athletes to make money based off their image and likeness could affect this fair and balanced playing field. I would argue, if you look at the numbers, we already don't have a fair and balanced playing field. We already have the haves and the have-nots within each sport. So that's an interesting point that they're making. They're hitting on one of their guiding principles in the guidelines that they're putting out. But I'm here to tell you that when I went through and looked at this, because I used to believe in this argument as well, I don't really think that allowing athletes to generate revenue from their name or image, or even if you were to pay them directly, I don't think that directly is going to affect the on the field environment. Let's go on. The guidelines go on to say, after talking about making sure that the rules are focused, transparent, enforceable, and facilitate fair and balanced, the next guideline they state is that the rules that are put in place must make clear the distinction between collegiate and professional opportunities. Let's go on because we can combine the next one with that. And they say that the rules must make clear that compensation for athletics performance or participation is impermissible. So what are they saying with these guidelines? By making sure to differentiate professional and amateur, they're sticking with their arguments that college sport is full of amateur athletes. They're saying that there is a distinction between getting paid to go and promote a product and being paid because you play the sport. Now, that's a very slippery slope because arguably without being the athlete, you wouldn't be able to capitalize off your name and image. That's not always the case, but oftentimes it is. So it's a slippery slope. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to make sure to signify that these athletes are still amateur athletes. And more importantly for the next guideline is that they are not employees of universities. The the statement says that the guidelines must reaffirm that student athletes are students first and not employees. Why does this matter? Well, if you remember back a couple years ago, there was this big push, and there still is a little bit of a push for student athletes to unionize. And the idea behind that is that these athletes are employees, and that by unionizing, they can negotiate just like any other union can for employee rights. You might think, well, what, what do they care about? Normally, negotiations deal with wages. That's a big part of it, getting paid. But there's other things, such as insurance. Now, while student athletes generally, depending on the university, but generally are covered under the university's insurance while they're an athlete, that insurance runs out. For example, when I was an athlete at Ohio State, I had a separated shoulder, torn rotator cuff, and a labrum tear, and I played through half of the season with that. At the end of the season, I was told you have six months to report any medical issues. After six months, we are not going to cover any of the medical costs. So I had a very limited amount of time to go and report the issues, to get MRIs, get surgery, and go through rehab and still have the university pay for it. One of the things that employees will argue for is that they have rights that extend out past this. Look at the NFL, where you have years of disability insurance that go on after. So by having the ability to negotiate and to call yourself an employee, it actually increased some of the things that you are entitled to. One of the arguments against paying student-athletes is that by paying them, they then become employees of the university, and as a result, they are entitled to certain things. A lot of those entitlements, while not directly money given to them, are financial costs university. Providing them health insurance, for example, costs the university millions of dollars. The other aspect of making sure that they are not considered employees of the university deals with a tax standpoint. 
the NCAA is a tax-exempt organization. Universities are tax-exempt organizations because universities are, are generally state institutions. If they're not, they're private, but even those private universities primarily are non-for-profit institutions, and so they are tax-free. The NCA is considered a non-profit institution and as a result is tax-free. By having student-athletes become employees of the university and of the athletic department, the argument about them being amateurs goes by the wayside. And the argument that they're amateurs is a major funding principle for the NCA in getting that tax-exempt status. The NCA has argued over the years that they are tax-exempt because they're dealing with amateur athletes and they are trying to provide them with these unique opportunities and set the rules and structures in place. And that generally has stood up without any issue. But if all of a sudden we start paying the student-athletes, they can no longer argue that they're an amateur organization. They are now a professional organization. And so the tax-exempt requirements become a lot harder for them to comply with. So I think it's very interesting that the guidelines are specifying that we must make sure that we still have this distinction between a college and professional athlete, that these are college athletes, that as college athletes, that they are not being paid for athletic performance, that they're getting paid for something outside of athletics, and that they are not allowed to be paid for their athletic performance, and that they are still not employees of the university, that they are rather just students. The next principle and guideline they talk about is this idea that the policy that's put in place to allow student-athletes to profit off their name, likeness, and image must enhance principles of diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. Now again, this is where I want to pause because there is a major question that I've always had around allowing student-athletes to profit off their name, likeness, or image or the idea of paying student-athletes directly for their participation in the sport. And that question is, how would that policy be affected by Title IX? Because Title IX is something that athletic departments are constantly trying to balance with all their new policies that are put in place. For those of you who might not have the background, Title IX was passed in 1972, and it states very simply, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, end quote. I'm not going to go really deep into what this has to do with sports, but just know that this does have a direct application to sports that has been tried through the courts and actually has been offered through multiple policy interpretations. Within those policy interpretations, there are three specific things that all athletic departments must have in order to be compliant. The first one is they must have equal scholarship allotments. When we're talking about equal with Title IX, we're not talking about comparing a football program with a women's basketball team. What we're talking about is if we add up every single opportunity or scholarship for men and add up every single scholarship for women, that those final numbers, those summations, those need to be equal. So we're saying that when we add up all the scholarship for male athletes and all the scholarship for female athletes, those numbers have to be equal. They say that you must accommodate the student's athletic interests and abilities through the number and type of opportunities available. We're not going to get into that. There's a whole podcast we could do just focusing on that requirement. But the one that's really interesting when we're starting to talk about allowing athletes to profit from their name, likeness, and image is this point. The policy interpretation of Title IX says the general athletic program components for males and females must be equal. What does that mean? The interpretation goes on 
to specify the exact treatment benefits and opportunities that must be equal. For example, they say that the equipment and supplies must be equal. Now, again, we're not saying that the equipment needs to be dead equal, meaning that if I buy 20 new helmets for football, I have to buy 20 helmets for women. No, it's saying that if I add up all the money spent on equipment and supplies for male sports and add up all the money spent on equipment and supplies for female sports, that those summations will be equal. So the equipment and supplies need to be equal. The scheduling of games and practice times need to be equal. I can't allow the men's sports to have the prime practice times or have all the field access and deny it to women. I have to make sure those are equal. The travel and per diem allowances have to be equal. The opportunity for coaching and academic tutoring must be equal. The assignment and compensation of coaches and tutors. Locker room and other facilities need to be equal. The medical and training services need to be equal. Housing and dining services need to be equal. And the one that's really interesting for our conversation today is that the publicity for men and women needs to be equal. Generally speaking, what publicity has been interpreted to mean is that the advertising I'm doing for the men's sports must be equal to how much I'm doing for the women's sports. So if I am spending a million dollars on an advertising campaign for my men's basketball and football teams, then I need to find a million dollars and I need to spend that advertising women's teams. It doesn't matter whether that's basketball or volleyball or softball or whatever. I just have to be spending the same amount of money. The question that I have and the thing that's interesting in the guidelines that they state is that they're specifically pointing to gender equity. But publicity goes beyond just advertising a game or a team. It also goes to advertising individual athletes. The interesting thing becomes the more I advertise an athlete, the more likely they are to get a sponsorship deal because they have notoriety. The sponsorship deal then creates revenue for that individual athlete. But the male sports are generally promoted more on a whole. And there's a high concentration of notoriety for football players and basketball players. If we go into different regions in the South, baseball, there's high notoriety. In the Midwest and Northeast, you have ice hockey that has high notoriety. But the idea is that by providing publicity to those individuals might create opportunities, more opportunities for those individuals to then sign sponsorship deals and capitalize on their name and likeness. What then happens if female athletes are not getting the same opportunities to sign publicity deals? Does that technically qualify as a violation of this component that Title IX calls for equal publicity. I'm not sure what the interpretation of that is going to be, but the interpretation of the law does allow individual student-athletes to bring lawsuits claiming damages against institutions. So there is a chance that by passing this rule, the NCA is opening its member institutions up to being in violation of Title IX. If male athletes are getting more opportunities for publicity and generating more revenue from that publicity than the female athletes. The argument against that would be that these are deals that are being done outside the university. But I see a large number of donors getting involved with these publicity deals. Access to the donors is oftentimes provided through the university or through the coach of the team. Football, basketball generally have bigger donors than women's sports. And so we have this imbalance that's potentially in place that's actually hurting gender equity. So the NCAA is acknowledging this, I think, through this principle that they're stating that whatever rules that's put in place must enhance principles of diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. There's going to be some difficulty in actually applying this that could lead to some big questions within Title IX, specifically, as I pointed out, 
with this question of publicity. Moving on to the last principle and guideline that they give for the institution of this rule, they say that it must protect the recruiting environment and prohibit inducements to select, remain at, or transfer to a specific institution. This is the biggest issue with this new rule. The ability for big-time donors to come in and influence where a student-athlete goes. This has the potential to really throw a wrench in that collegiate model. Let's stop for a second and let me address why this is and why this is that third major question and issue I have in reviewing what the NCAA is doing. If we go back and look at SMU, SMU very famously got the death penalty. And the reason that they got the death penalty is for multiple violations of major NCA bylaws. Specifically, we had a large number of donors giving money directly to student athletes and their families. The problem with that is that that completely goes against this notion of a fair and balanced playing field. By giving money, I'm actually inducing individuals or I'm influencing individuals' decision process, and I'm arguably making them professional athletes. So that's why, the, that's why SMU was awarded the death penalty and had their football program stripped down. The NCAA is acknowledging that this is a potential concern with allowing individuals to profit from their name and likeness by saying that we're trying to recruit, protect the recruiting environment. However, I don't know how that's possible. And it gets back to this issue of those kind of select 60 schools that I talked about that can really afford to pay their student athletes. A large portion of money that's generated from those schools comes from donors. Now, those big schools are also generating large portions of money from TV deals, they're generating from postseason tournament play, they're generating money from ticket sales. But donors still make up a large portion of money. Oftentimes, the university will then take that money and at least take a part of that money and put it towards improving the facilities of that respected team. So, Let's just talk about T. Boone Pickens. T. Boone Pickens, unfortunately, passed away earlier this year, but he was a billionaire that donated a ton of money. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to Oklahoma State. In donating that money, they redid their football stadium. Well, in redoing the stadium, that helps you get more recruits by having a bigger stadium with bigger crowds, with better facilities. Those are all things that recruits look at when they're making decisions about schools. So to say that a donor is not having influence on the recruiting process just because they're not directly paying the student athlete in the past is just wrong because they are influencing because the money that they're giving to the athletic department is going to improve facilities. So to say that these new rules will not be affecting the recruiting process is just wrong because I think and I think the major worry for the NCA and why they state this is that instead of that donor donating that $10 million to Ohio State or Tibboom Pickens donating $100 million to Oklahoma State, they will take that money and they will give it directly to the student-athlete. They're not going to do it in an underhanded way or an illegal way like SMU was doing with paying players on their table. Instead, they will sign that recruit and say, hey, if you come to Ohio State, I'll give you a $10 million endorsement deal with my auto company or with whatever company I am. I will hire you to be a spokesman for it. And that deal might include appearing in advertisements and commercials, us being able to use your name to help sell our product. The money is going to go to the athletes. In the, in the past and how it is right now, that money normally goes to athletes through the building of facilities and improved environment around campus. 
Now with this new law, the big concern is going to be that that money is going to now go through sponsorship deals where that donor is going to pay the, the athlete direct money to be a sponsor. I have no idea how the NSA is going to get around this. It's good, I think, that they are noting specifically that this could be a problem and that we have to make sure to keep this separate. Maybe they put in rules that stipulate that an athlete is not allowed to make money off their name and likeness until they get to the university. That's a starting point, but that doesn't dictate the conversations that you can have before you get to the university and have those deals in place. The other big issue with this, this notion of recruitment being affected by donors signing people to be sponsors, is a decrease in funding them for the athletic department. Athletic departments are oftentimes dependent upon donations to operate. They have donations that are coming in that not only pay for these facilities, but they also pay salaries for coaches. They use that money to pay operating costs for all the other sport teams. Because even though $10 million might come in that might be earmarked directly towards a basketball program or a football program, the university can take that money and put into place things that are going to benefit not only the football program, but also other programs at the institutions. But if the athletic department has less money coming in from donations, how's that going to affect their overall operation? And what's going to be the outcome? Arguably, I would say that you're going to have potentially less money donated to the athletic department, to the university, which means they have a lower operating cost. Now, some institutions, that's not a huge deal, but your smaller state institutions, your institutions like Coastal Carolina, which has about 80% of its operating costs for athletics coming directly from subsidization, meaning it's coming from the university, generally through what we call athletic fees that we put on students. Those schools are so dependent upon those donors. If those donors take that money instead of donating it to the university and now put it in, give it directly to the athletes to do promotional deals for their companies or for them or paying them $10 million to come and sign a series of autographs for an hour, that's going to hurt the operations of that athletic department. And that will actually cause other things to be cut because the less money that's coming in, that's not only going to affect your football and basketball program, it's going to affect your Olympic sports too, your lower tier men's sports like your men's soccer team. It's then going to go and affect your women's sports too because we have to cut that money back from somewhere. The NCAA goes on to state at the end of their press release that, quote, the board's action was based on comprehensive recommendations from the NCAA Board of Governors, federal and state legislation working groups, which include presidents, commissioners, athletic directors, administrators, and student athletes. The groups gathered input from the past several months from numerous stakeholders, including current and former student-athletes, coaches, presidents, faculty, and commissioners across all three divisions. The board also directed continued and productive engagement with legislators. End quote. This is the last point I want to make. The NSA doing this is great, but they kind of were forced to. In the last couple months, we saw legislation pass in California that allowed student-athletes to start making money off their likeness in image. Now, that was set to not go in place until 2023, I believe. Um, we've seen legislation proposed in other states like Florida, where that legislation was going to come into place a lot quicker. So the NCAA's hand was kind of forced on this. If they hadn't uh, came out and made this announcement and started to work on putting into place the exact language for this new rule, they were going to be in trouble. And as the statement goes on to say, the working group will continue to gather feedback through April on how to best respond to the state and federal legislative environment and to refine its recommendations on the principles of the regulatory framework. The board asked each division to create any new rules 
beginning immediately, but no later than January 2021. Mark Emmert, who's the president of the NCA, said, quote, as a national governing body, the NCA is uniquely positioned to modify its rules to ensure fairness and a level playing field for student athletes. Again, look at this focus on fairness. And and he goes on to say, the board's actions today creates a path to enhance opportunities for student athletes while ensuring they compete against students and not professionals. Again, Emirates statements are highlighting this idea of the collegiate model, that these are students, that they are not professionals, that they are still amateur athletes. The notion that they're working with legislative bodies, they're trying to make sure that they put into place rules that are going to go along with the laws that are already being passed and are in the process of being passed. Having that 2021 deadline is good. It's saying that we are going to be acting on this sooner rather than later and trying to pass these bylaws. The NCAA is in a bit of a scramble here, in my opinion. They are the preeminent association that governs college sports. As a result of that, if they are not proactive in this matter, they risk having other people dictate what they can do. By having California athletes allowed to make money off their name, likeness, and image, having Florida athletes, those institutions in those states, if the NCAA doesn't change its bylaws, are going to be in violation of NCAA rules, which means those institutions couldn't compete in NCAA competitions, which in turn would greatly hurt the NCAA. But not having schools like Florida, Florida State, USC, UCLA, Stanford competing in all sports, we lose some of the prestige of what the NCAA is. So the NCAA is trying their best to make sure that they're in compliance, as I said, with these legislative rules. Now, these questions that I brought up today and these potential issues are things they're going to have to address. I don't think there's a lot of concern with this fair and balanced playing field. I think that's more of a optics argument that people make the argument that allowing certain athletes to profit will create an unbalanced playing field. As I think we pointed out today, I don't think that's the case. We already don't have a very balanced playing field. We like to think that we do, but in reality, as the numbers show for people who are actually winning and competing at the highest level, there's really only a select few colleges that are doing that. They're going to have to deal with this issue of equity, specifically gender equity. As I pointed out, there's some potential legality with Title IX, specifically focusing on providing equal publicity to men and women. I don't know how the courts might rule on that, but I imagine that there could be legal action taken if female athletes are not given equal access to these opportunities to capitalize off their names and likeness. And finally, how we deal with donors becomes a big problem and a big issue. I think maybe the biggest issue that the NSA needs to tackle with putting in the specific language. As they say, they're trying to protect the recruiting environment. I pointed out that means protecting against donors. That means not allowing donors to have access to the student athletes before they're student athletes. I don't know how you regulate that. I don't know how you stop that line of communication before the student athlete is at your institution because it's too easy for a donor to go after an individual competes their high school season and sign them to a deal to be a sponsor for your company. Or as I said, the easiest thing, give them a million dollars to sign autographs for an hour. I don't know exactly what the NCAA is going to do, but that to me is the biggest obstacle they have to overcome as they continue to put this in place. I think the best way to end this is a way I began a podcast when I talked about the history of the NCAA and college sports. And that's with a Gordon Gee quote from 2007. This was the former president of Ohio State. He said, quote, I'm an avid supporter of intercollegiate athletics, but I believe intercollegiate athletics is in danger of losing its direction and its soul. 
By that I mean it has become corporatized, it has become isolated, and it has become disconnected from the vitality and the values of the university." End quote. I think this is a good quote for the NCAA to keep in mind as they're putting into place the specific language and rules that govern an athlete's ability to capitalize off their name, likeness, and image. I think it's good that individual athletes are going to be able to do this, but by allowing them to do that, we have to make sure that we are not taking college sports away from the university and turning it into something that's professional. The NCAA has said multiple times in their press release that they're trying to protect against that. Gordon Gee specifically says that if we allow too much corporatization to take place, then college sport and college athletes are going to become isolated at the university. And by isolating them, we potentially risk losing that collegiate model that Mark Emmert and the NCA cling so tightly to. If you have any questions about this topic or about the NCA, its structure and how it operates, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the sport professor. Give us a follow and stay up to date, not only on this issue, but other breaking news stories about the sporting world. We try to post weekly to tackle topics of the sporting industry and help educate our viewers. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.